Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we're talking to Jonathan Cohen. Jonathan is a writer, poet, producer, father, and futurist who imagines and designs new applications of technology. He's the co-founder of Logic AI, a behavior change system seeking to connect the mind and the body. He's also the founder of The Stories Company, and he's the co-creator and executive producer of The Breakdown, a podcast about mental health with Mayan Bialik that I absolutely love. Really, I'm addicted to it. So I recommend everyone to listen to it. And please trust me on that. It's actually Mayim Bialik's breakdown is how people will find it on the App Store or YouTube on Mayim Bialik's page, B-I-A-L-I-K. Her last name is a little hard. Exactly. And guys, really, it's really awesome. With over two decades of training in mindfulness and healing, Cohen seeks to find ways to fuse storytelling and somatic experiences. So hi, Jonathan. How are you doing today? Hello. Hi, Maria. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here today with us. And, you know, I'd love to know more about your story. What drove you to be where you are today? And, you know, why do you have this interest in mental health, technology, and futurism? I, I find it an interesting combination. So how did I get here is maybe the best way to start. I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I then moved to the U.S. in my early 20s and then ended up in Los Angeles for graduate school. I went to the American Film Institute's conservatory and studied screenwriting. And I thought I would be a screenwriter for my career. After school, I spent about six years in Los Angeles writing and producing and trying to be a overall creative. And then, you know, never thought I would go back to Toronto, but I ended up joining an innovation and design company, something akin to an IDO or a frog. And there I began to understand how the innovation world worked and working for big corporations to understand the changing nature of society and the changing nature of customer demand and how companies would build strategies, products and services to address that and to help them stay competitive, I quickly realized that a lot of what they were doing was telling a story of the changing nature of the world and telling a story about the products and services and the roles that they could play in people's lives. And one of the things that really began to come into my focus was the changing nature of technology and how companies were trying to utilize technology to solve these problems and to stay ahead of whatever customer demand that they were facing in the market. So at Idea Couture, which was this innovation and design company, I started the uh, storytelling and media department. And we grew from myself and an intern to 15 people at one point. And we began telling the stories in film and in stories about the strategy, the insights, and the new opportunity spaces. And then we would help organizations circulate that across. So one example that I give is that Whirlpool, before they built the Connected Kitchen, we worked with them for a couple of years and we built some video prototypes of what would it look like when you have a recipe app and that's connected to your shopping and that's connected to your smart home and your appliances And then that sort of changed the trajectory of their company. We did the same with Campbell's. 
Tyson Foods ended up increasing their uh, investment in non-meat products and alternative proteins based on not the work that I specifically did, but the, the you know the larger teams were doing. And so I got to see how storytelling and and creativity really fueled innovation and design. And from there, I got to see how creativity and you know we call design fiction or design futures was a core component. And and what I saw really when I got to the innovation world is that. The innovation world and the creative writing world of Los Angeles had an enormous amount in common. They just approached things very differently, but the skill sets were very similar and and with a lot of overlap. And I thought if the LA world could take some of the innovation and design world's strategies and techniques and apply them to TV writing, it would be a much more understandable system to navigate where LA seems to be a very confusing environment where what gets made and who gets to make it is often a mystery. When it comes to future scenarios and and storytelling and innovation, the storytelling makes it more tangible for people to understand, right? Do you think that's the reason that is so much used or, or is it something else? Well, it was interesting before I got to the innovation and design company, they had beautiful graphic designers and they really differentiated themselves from the competition by how they collected insight, how they presented that insight, uh, all their research, and then how they presented their ideas. They brought them to life in these really beautifully designed decks, but it was PDFs. And so when we, you take that and then you say, well, then how do you turn that into a, something multimedia? whether that be an animation or a short video or whether that be, we did like short films, the future of banking, for example, we did many short films where we cast actors and we treated it like a real production. And it was sort of a hybrid between a music video and a commercial and an explainer video, you know, unlike regular product videos, which are often done with, you know, these very bad animations or these like super bad reenactments. We sort of did it at the level of like, what would I do with my friends if I was like really telling the story of these people? And we shot it with like Alexas and made it look beautiful and had production designers and like created a whole story world for these people. And what I think the business world really lacked at that time was an understanding that emotionality is as key a component to understanding product features as the technical specs of the product. And if people could envision their customers getting excited about something and using it, then that would really drive the organization to want to create it. And it would drive the focus groups to really understand what the potential was. And so we really saw our work as taking the strategy, bringing it to life, bringing the ideas to life and helping organizations not only understand their users, but understand the potential that the new technology could yield. So you told me about the technology, the innovation side, the futurism side. You didn't tell me how you got into the men mental health piece. From a series of breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> um, in all seriousness, I think the mental health side happened at a young age for me. My family had its own unique experiences as I was growing up. One foundational experience is that my brother, when I was 14, he was 17, was injured in a car accident and he was left with a severe traumatic brain injury. The prognosis for him was that he would never walk, talk or recognize family again. 
And even before that, my sister had very mysterious health problems. She saw every specialist in the world. At one point, she wasn't able to walk up and down stairs. And so she had all of this mysterious problems where she saw lots of doctors who uh, weren't able to help her. And around 18, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which 25 years ago was a total mystery. And, you know, half the doctor said, well, it's just in your head. And the other people said, well, you know, stress has a huge component to it. And so really led by my sister, who was an MBA at the time and about to work as an accountant, she began to change her entire life and became a yoga instructor and became a vegetarian and really did everything she could to try and understand what her own mind-body relationship was like. And she went on a journey that was really to save her own life because her quality of life was so bad. She was in so much chronic pain. She and, and my brother have had drastic transformations in their own well-being. And that guided my own searching and, and exploration to see therapists and healers and try to make sense of the world around me in a way that became very clear that the mind-body connection at that point was still being contemplated. And from, you know, through my own exploration, it's very clear that there is no mind without the body and vice versa. We're in an intricate relationship between the two. And understanding our own mental health and well-being leads directly to understanding our physical health and well-being. And that's sort of how I began to understand it. And then, you know, core to storytelling, you're basically playing psychologist to your characters. What do they fear? What do they not fear? What what motivates them? What are their aspirations? What are their goals? How are they going to react to any situation? And so when building a scene, for example, in a screenplay or in a novel, what you're really doing is trying to get into the heads and the emotional realities of, of the people that you're writing for. And so in many ways, I think I was just doing that as another way to to find a truth or to learn about myself and how I would perceive these characters. I love this background. Thank you so much for sharing. And then that brings us to Lodic AI, right? Did I pronounce it right? Lodic AI? Yeah, Lodic. It's it's funny. We As a Canadian, we have a lot of Canadians who say Lotic, but it's pronounced Lodic. <laughs> Lodic AI. Lodic. <laughs> well, I, I'm not helping. I'm Brazilian trying to speak English here. So for sure, <laughs> this does not help. <laughs> so you're basically using AI, artificial intelligence and behavior science to improve people's quality of life. So how's that? And what exactly, which pain are you trying to solve through technology? And honestly, I mean, I, I don't know how much you can share, but... I really would like a better understanding on, is it already live? How it's going to work? What's behind that? Sure. So we are a pre-market company, so I'll be careful in terms of exactly what I'm, what I'll reveal. But the impetus came from my relationship with my co-founder, uh, Bill Welser, a former executive at the Rand Corporation and technologist who is the you know technology brains behind this operation. I'm by no means a technologist. And we collaborated and began to talk about how sometimes technologists, you know, they solve the problems that are within their grasp, which are, you know, we can count steps, we can count calories, we can evaluate sleep, but that leaves a lot on the table in terms of information about an individual. And what really makes up an individual and how do we know who someone is? And from my background as a storyteller, I, you know, my perspective is that our stories make up who we are. 
our motivations, our belief systems, the lenses through which we see the world, our self-talk, our doubts, our hopes, those are all captured in our stories. And if there was some way that we could use artificial intelligence and machine learning to code and unpack the sentence structure, the tones of voices, the amount of dictation, the volume that is, we could learn a lot about an individual and begin to map that back and better understand them. Now, several key areas, you know, we began to think about, which was we were in the innovation and design world. All companies began to use this word like customer centric. We're so we're human centric, we're customer centric, we're personalized, we're creating personalized experiences. But mostly that's lip service. You know, besides writing your name on a Coke can and telling you that it's Jonathan's Coke or, you know, giving you the recommendation of what other people bought that are similar. For the most part, personalization hasn't really reached a pivotal consensus or a specialization that is is unique enough, in my opinion. I, I just don't see it being truly personalized. And so we began to think about how could we create a new data set that could lead to truly personalized medicine, primarily because that's the next level of personalized medicine is taking into account our genetics and our predispositions and our physiology, but it's not taking into account our psychology and our behaviors and our belief systems. And a lot of what impacts us when we're going on to a care plan and whether or not we're going to complete that adherence to a care plan is our motivations and our belief systems. And so that's where we started. And I don't know if I've answered, I don't know how much of your question I've answered based on that. I, I lost track a little bit. No, 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 you, you are, you are, you are. I'm just curious and if you are allowed to share, uh, but so you, you have this app, right? And I'm a user. So basically I need to, I need to somehow be telling about myself. So your technology. Okay. I, I know where you're going. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to understand like the use case, right? So our technology prompts people to receive questions and record audio or video replies. And through that, there's also, you know, skill building and engagement. There's content to view and to watch, as well as baseline your experience through clinically validated assessments or customized assessments. And one of our main focus areas is in the mental health space to consider what happens in between therapy appointments. For most people, you go to a therapist, you work on something that's either recorded in your notebook or recorded on their end in terms of like notes that the clinician takes. And you're like, okay, today I had this breakthrough where I realized that this is some sort of trigger that I have. And when I get that, I experience anxiety and then I, you know, snap at someone or I, I withdraw. And when I withdraw, it has a negative impact because I'm not, you know, able to advocate for myself. And so this next week, what's going to happen is I'm going to really keep tabs on anytime I feel myself withdrawing because I feel stressed and overwhelmed and I'm shutting down. Well, most people, if they even get to that level of insight in a therapy session to map their triggers to start with, then they go through the rest of their week and maybe the next day they're paying attention and maybe the next the day after that. And by the third day, they've kind of forgotten what they're doing and they're not instantiating the work at all. And then by the third and fourth and fifth day, they're just kind of back to their normal routine. And then day seven, if they get to go back to the therapist, the therapist said, well, how were you this week? And they remember maybe the day before or the day before that. They don't really remember day four or five. They definitely don't remember 
you know, the first day after therapy. And so if there is a way that we can help the therapeutic process by giving tools of self-reflection and increased ability to monitor your triggers and your reactions to those triggers, and then ways to work on those so that we're instantiating whatever the therapeutic process has been, whether that be through self-talk or increased self-reflection. And then we're able to give insight into the language and the way that people are expressing themselves based on these questions. That's a huge, huge opportunity area for us. But we also see that mental health and emotional conditions are, they play a huge role across disease states, especially in chronic disease. So whether that be in cancer or whether that be in gastral GI issues, whether that be in post-surgery recovery or neurodegenerative diseases, having additional tools to help us understand how our emotional states are impacting our adherence to care plans or our abilities to recover or process information, all of that is you know, very ripe for us in terms of areas that we can help. You know, there's definitely something that I'd love to give it a try. So when, when is it live already? Is it something that... It's pre-live. We're doing betas right now and we have certain population groups that we're betaing with and we're, you know, continuing the design process. But yeah, we're also exploring the potential of doing a direct-to-customer release. Right now we're in a B2B opportunities. That's great. So I, I have another question. So basically... As I've been learning here, talking to so many experts, is that you know one of the biggest challenges of using AI and machine learning is having access to enough data for you to be able to build this rationale as unbiased as possible, or else you're going to have this specific target and then it's going to... And we've been hearing a lot cases of AI being used for talent management, and then you see the very same biased white man hiring process than you see anywhere else. So how are you guys planning to overcome that if, you know, you're beginning that with this small public to MVP? So the key is diversity in, in the training data. We're conducting studies right now and uh, ensuring that they're as inclusive as possible. There are challenges in terms of, you know, overcoming language differences and the expression of language and the use of colloquialism and sort of we have the ability to translate that. But some of that stuff is, you know, we're starting in English as a starting point, English and Spanish. And definitely bias is something that we're testing for all the time and trying to improve the system. Okay, yes, the word for sure is diversity. That's the key. Okay, uh, guys, as you can see, it, it was just... Three questions, we're already at the end of the show. So for sure, we are continuing. I have so much to ask you, Jonathan. So guys, hanging there. We are moving to the second episode with Jonathan Cohen. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.